0: The closing numbers on the markets today, at one point the market fell uh, as if down a well, over 700 points. Apple shares are just getting hammered this morning.
1: We're down by between 3 and 4.5% generally across these markets. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We're red
0: everywhere essentially, down by 4, 5%. We're down over 16%. Dow at the same time has fallen about 18%. The stock market is now down 21%.
1: Because we're now down 43%.
0: What in the world is happening on Wall Street?
1: That year was 2008. Panic had set inside stock market and there was a real fear in Silicon Valley. As it turned out, businesses all around were getting impacted. Some with weak balance sheets ran out of money. Some went for mergers, buyouts to optimize themselves. Some business found out they were just not suited for the new reality. On the other hand, such restructuring also provided opportunities for new startups to come up. During the last downturn, many firms made their mark. In fact, as per a study by Metamark, Companies founded during the financial crisis had a very high proportion, among others, to go for a successful IPO or exit. GitHub, Nutanix, Cloudera, Airbnb, MongoDB, Slack, Yammer, Twilio, Tumblr, Square are just a few shining examples of that. We are now again in a downturn, staring at business uncertainties. In this COVID-led downturn, startups are going down, millions have lost jobs. Whether this downturn is temporary, or with longer implications, one simply doesn't know. Can we learn from those who survived the last downturn? I have a special guest today, Mark Rainak. Mark was the Chief Product Officer at Imperwa and during the last downturn of 2007-2009, he was leading marketing at Imperwa, then a privately owned startup. He is now a founding member of Acru Capital, a venture capital firm based out of San Francisco. I invited him to discuss his learnings from the past downturns and what could one to do survive this. This is your host, Alok. Hello, Mark. So how did you navigate your way at Imperwa during the financial crisis of 2007-2009?
0: In short, we reduced cost uh, and stayed focused. Uh, I've been through several rounds of layoffs in my career after the dot-com bust and after 9-11. And for me, this was the first time I was on the decision side of a layoff. So I actually remember it quite well. It was was hard to do. And to be fair, what we did at the time was was pretty minimal compared to what's happening right now. And we ended up coming back pretty quickly as the financial crisis sort of spurred more appetite for higher regulation, which, which benefited uh, the data side of our business quite a bit. Um, there was a different kind of downturn that I think about more in light of this one, uh, which was really more of an Imperva-specific downturn in 2014 that I think about. Again, we had a very big miss and our stock price plummeted and we had a, uh, a lot of financial problems with, with the company. So our 2014 layoff, which came about a quarter after that, was bigger in absolute numbers than the 2008 2007 layoff for sure, and, and probably also uh, on a percentage basis for the company. The key thing we did was essentially uh, kill a product line or put it on product, uh, put it on life support in order to focus on our core products. And both of those products also actually came back uh, quite fast again. So, so it turned out to be a good decision.
1: Hmm. So if I look back at your vantage point in between the years of 2007 and 2009, how did you observe other startups during those same years? Which enterprise startup impressed you from their strategy in those years?
0: This is kind of self-serving, but, but we actually started and spun out a startup called Encapsula uh, during that time. I had helped write the initial plan and it was my intention to go uh, run that company, but through a, a twist of fate, I was asked to run all of marketing for Imperva right around the same time, which I ended up doing. Uh, I guess it was actually a great time to start a SaaS-based application security and CDN business, Cloudflare, which is one of the other successful companies in the space, probably the primary competitor for, for what has become, was started actually right around the same time. Uh, I think the reason that those businesses were successful was that their customers were struggling financially and trying to do more online, and a SaaS solution was by far the most cost effective. We thought our business would be only for really small businesses at, uh, at Encapsula. We're thinking $50 a month kind of customers. So that's what the initial product was built for. But it turns out the sweet spot was much higher, about $500 a month. And eventually uh, today, a lot of the business of Encapsula, as I understand it, is, is full-on enterprises, you know, six-figure and up. Uh, what I think the team did a great job of in that time was uh, moving up market very, very quickly as they listened to what the real demand was.
1: Hmm. And what about human perspective? Uh, A lot of suffering in those startups, but uh, I tend to see that a lot of people also get more creative, more productive. Is it the best time to start new products or does it become gloomy all around?
0: Well, I go back to what we had to do in 2014 um, as a business, which we put basically a full product line on life support. So we, we laid off, dozens of engineers, almost all of them from from the one product line that we're putting on life support. And it was very painful to do that, especially because that particular product line had just gotten to the point it was ready to take off. We've gone from really dismal POC failures to a success rate of nearly 100%. So it really felt like we finally had product market fit. Uh, But what we did was we focused on the core products and it really did drive a lot of success over the next two years. And it worked out. I I see this pretty repeatedly, you know, whether it's related to the pandemic or just companies that haven't found product market fit and start to run out of runway. Usually they're trying to do a lot and there are opportunities hanging out there that don't get closed but have big numbers attached to them but actually have a lot of drain on the resources of the company. And the company has to make a hard decision like are you gonna do A or B and what's really gonna be the company focus. And usually when they do that, what they need to cut is very clear. And then what they need to focus on going forward is very clear. And I've actually found a lot of companies execute much better after a reduction in force or a cutback because they're able to focus. And I, I try to remember, uh, I try, I'm sorry, I try to remind the founders that I work with about that lesson. It's, it's really painful to scale back, but it makes you choose and it makes you focus. And a lot of times, uh, I would actually say most times, you end up being able to execute much better on the other side of it. So I'm kind of curious uh, to turn this back on you, Alok. How is it going for you in uh, Shift Left as a startup? Uh, what are things like for, for you in uh, Shift Left at this time?
1: So I think that's a great question. So in Shift Left, uh, what we are also experiencing, how to go through such downturns for the first very first time, essentially, something that is not in your control, but uh, forced by external factors. But uh, it has just been a month. But our learning is that, While it just like you said, uh, there is a lot more clarity on what we need to focus on versus what we not need to focus on. But apart from that, we also have realized that uh, going through these times actually helps you focus better on the core product itself. And you try to do better because you are now far more concentrated and far more Uh, refined in your objectives. But uh, let me actually come back to you uh, because you have lived through the product experience in 2007, 2009 timeframe, but now here in 2020, you are into your new avatar as a venture capitalist. What is your take on the current times if you don that hat? How it is different from the prior times?
0: Uh, I I think there are really very few people alive who've, who've seen anything like what we're seeing today I know for sure I haven't. I, I think that 2001, 2007 were definitely down times, but not quite like this. My grandfather passed away quite a few years ago, actually. He used to tell me stories about the Spanish flu epidemic, which he lived through, and he lost his sister. Oh, we're still talking about it many years later. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, actually. I think the sheer numbers of people that are affected by COVID are really staggering already. The estimates of what's to come, honestly, are pretty tough to think about. Um, so these are, are times that I don't think too many people have seen. As far as being a VC in this time, it's, it's different for me from being an operator. Uh, one part of it is that there's an aspect uh, of the world out there that kind of vilifies VCs. Uh, and I always joke that I turn to the dark side when I tell people about my background coming from Imperva to, uh, to A-Crew. And nobody ever disputes that. Nobody ever says it's the light side. Uh, so we've got sort of a reputation problem, I guess. I've also been thinking about that a lot, especially in light of what kind of work I've been having to do lately, because I'm working through some really tough times with, com- with some companies, um, and even the companies that are doing well are trying to prepare for, for maybe tough times. And I think it's the job of the board to help founders realize you know, what, what reality is and how hard it might be and, and work through it uh, regardless. So in some respects, I'm not that surprising that sometimes people feel badly about it, but it doesn't feel great you know, to be on the other side of that. Uh, what I would say also is that the thing that I love most about being a VC is actually one of the things that made the last month or so pretty pretty difficult. What I love about working with startups and working with companies in the portfolio is that I get to engage with my founders on, on the hardest, most interesting, uh, toughest problems they face, but kind of stay at a strategic level, which has always been my preference. So I come in, uh, I help them figure out what, what we think the right thing to do is as a group, as a team, hopefully, and then they go off and do it and I check back in when needed. But I get to move on to the next problem or the next interesting thing uh, or the next interesting company. In a regular environment, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, that might mean there'd be one or two or, or even maybe three efforts like that going on at any given time. Today, it's basically happening with every single company I'm involved with simultaneously. So from a, a level of work and a level of busyness um, and, and honestly, a little bit of a level of stress perspective, it's, it's been pretty crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I look at your past experience, and actually uh, with few gray hairs that you have, what's your advice to startups to survive this?
0: So I'd probably break it into two. Uh, generally, for any startup that's you know, already founded or, or along the way on having hired up a team, you gotta do what you can to survive. A lot of times that's gonna be making a tough trade-off, like I described before. Often people wanna wait, get another quarter of signal, um, in order to make those choices. And generally, I would say, make the choices now. If you wait until later and you burn more uh, going into making that choice, it's just gonna make that choice need to be steeper and harder to make uh, on the other side of it. Uh, I really do think things will get better, um, but they might not get better right away. They might get worse first. Um, So I think making the tough choices now so that you don't have to make harder choices later is one thing I'd say. Um, The other thing I would say is, is, figure out where to focus, Uh, I guess, feel like a little bit of broken record there, but, you know, make sure you go back to all the things you're trying to do in your business and understand, you know, what's fitting with customers, what's not, uh, what fits the nature of your organization. And a lot of times that's, you know, you want your go-to-market to to be one way, but the reality of the market is different. So you got to reshape your go-to-market around that, or your vision for the product was one way, but the customers are really using it a different way. And you just got to, you know, let go uh, of some of those things in order to focus on what's going to actually make the company successful. And I think if you do that, like I said, I think things really will get better. And I think eventually um, we're all going to be okay.
1: Uh, yeah, I think in the long term, uh, we are going to be okay. So, okay, a final question in that sense What kind of startup ideas will interest you in these times? Uh, I actually shared a post today on my LinkedIn. Uh, and it's a great post coming in from Grace uh, Eiford. What she says is uh, about uh, four or five areas uh, about remote work, remote school, warehousing and fulfillment, social. Uh, I mean, my personal focus was remote school and remote work are going to be very interesting areas for the startups to focus on. But uh, just asking your perspective, as a VC, what are you looking for?
0: Yeah, so I would... I would agree with that. You know, my, my view on investing, and I spend most of my time in security and infrastructure. So I think about things that are security and infrastructure oriented around remote work. One that might not be immediately obvious, which I think has been a big opportunity regardless of the pandemic is essentially email security. But I would, I would broaden it out and uh, talk about messaging. I think the current generation of anti-phishing and anti-business email compromise solutions are just not getting the job done technically. And someone has, for a while, needed to find a better solution. What's interesting is that you know, COVID, like other world events, is really being used as a hook for, for those kinds of attacks. Um, I, I saw a stat somewhere, I'm not gonna remember exactly where, that the, the, the number of uh, email compromise and phishing attacks has increased by about tenfold since the pandemic started. And it's a very hard technical problem to solve, but I think if somebody can solve it, Uh, It's a massive opportunity, both for the existing world, but I think as more and more workers have been forced into new collaboration platforms, that's a ton more channels for these kinds of attacks. So I think the opportunity there is is pretty big. I would say another another aspect is is just generally enabling and securing remote workers in in what I would call modern ways that don't require physical contact, Uh, not just in the social distancing sense, but... Two of my siblings work for organizations who've had to go to remote work, and in those organizations, surprisingly, you, you had to go into the office physically first in order to set up your remote work uh, setup, which seems just crazy to me. And it didn't didn't work well. In particular, one of those organizations that had workers that had possible COVID cases that thankfully they didn't end up with COVID, but they really couldn't actually go into the office in order to set up work from home. So it took uh, weeks in some cases. So I think. If you extend that beyond just, you know, setting up your laptop for Zoom at home to every business process should be a business process that can ha- that can happen remotely. I think there's a lot of work in a lot of industries, and so I think that's a, a pretty big opportunity. An example of one that it's kind of obvious is telemedicine. You know, a lot of the work you do with your doctor probably can be done remotely, and uh, and and in today's world right now, it kind of has to be. Uh, so that's an area that I think is interesting. I would say the last one, uh, when you talk about the post from Grace that I mentioned communities and consumer that really triggered uh, an idea for me. I, I think there's going to be a lot more thirst for community than there already was. I think people felt cut off from their community by being being at home, and they're they're starting to already trying to find ways to do that online. And I think that'll continue. You know, even when we get to go back to the physical world, people are going to want to have those ways of connecting, and I think they're going to want different ways. Uh, potentially than the ways people are connecting on traditional social media today, or they might use traditional social media as a platform on top. But I think there's potentially a lot of opportunity in in helping people connect uh, in a more real and human way, but not necessarily in person.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I agree with that. I think partially in uh, a few of the things that you see is that you used to have social media for people to talk to each other. Now they're doing things over social media. People are giving classes people are uh, helping each other just to cook food a lot of people forgot about the art of cooking food uh, just as a few things Uh, so I think yeah that's a great area. but Mark I think uh, thanks for joining me on this podcast it was a great experience having you thanks
0: a lot uh, great to be here